welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. women's reserve, it's women's fear of war that has led men to make these really unwise and cowardly decisions in foreign policy. In this episode, we talked to historian Professor Julie Gottlieb from the University of Sheffield about her book, Guilty Women, and how it casts new light on the gendered representation of appeasement, as well as the ways in which British women, from pacifist to fascist, were deeply invested in foreign policy between the wars. Did British men and women react in the same way to the imminence of the Second World War? How did women feel about the Munich Agreement, the notorious false dawn of peace in our time, which in 1938 permitted the Nazi annexation of Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland and promised to avert war? From the moment the ink dried in the wind on British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's copy of the agreement, historians have debated, and often in excruciating detail, the wisdom, the morality, and the realpolitik of appeasement. However, they've almost entirely ignored women's side of the story. Since they have been given the vote in 1928 on equal terms with men, the so-called flappers vote, women's political power and influence was a matter of concern, coinciding in the 1930s with the deepening anxieties about the potential and increasing probability of another world war. And there were perceptions of striking gender differentials in public opinion about war preparedness, too, about Britain's involvement in another conflict. And the support for the architect of appeasement, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, from the gripping weeks in September when Chamberlain flew to visit Hitler through to the months that followed the doomed Munich Agreement. In the main, British women were at least perceived to be the greatest champions of appeasement. Public opinion polls, very much in their infancy in the late 1930s, found that, quote, women are the best friends of Mr. Chamberlain's policy. The prime minister himself counted on disproportionate support from women. Many anti-appeasers identified a simple equation and a direct causality here. Namely, that the emancipation of women had facilitated the flawed and morally corrupted policy of appeasement and more broadly sown the seeds of national decline. This was summed up, I think, quite nicely by uh, MP Harold Nicholson, who confessed in his diary less than a fortnight after the Munich Agreement, quote, I expect that the historians of our decline and fall will say that we were done the moment we gave women the vote. Many of the newspapers certainly agreed, and a common strand in the coverage of the unusually high number of by-elections that took place after Munich was that women would vote as a block, as a peace block, for the pro-appeasement government candidates. Yet there's no evidence to prove this formula that women voted in much larger numbers for pro-appeasement candidates. What was happening instead was that British women as a collective and women voters as a presumed block were being set up as the fall guys, or should we more rightly say the fall girls, for the failure of appeasement. It was perhaps too easy for the men in power to blame the women who continued to have negligible political power despite suffrage, and to scapegoat women for politicians' own lack of foresight. But were these women guilty? If so, what were they guilty of? 
And were they any more culpable than their male counterparts for wanting to spare their offspring another world war? Welcome to the War Studies podcast. My name is Lizzie Ellen and I'm co-producer and co-editor of the podcast. Joining me today is a very special guest, all the way, not that she's had to travel or anything, from the University of Sheffield and a friend and former colleague, Professor Julie Gottlieb. Professor Gottlieb is a historian who researches modern British political history, including women's history and gender studies, particularly women in politics and the construction of gender identities in the political sphere. She also studies the history of political extremism, race and identity, and mental health and the history of suicide. She has authored a number of books, including Feminine Fascism, Women in Britain's Fascist Movement, and Guilty Women, Foreign Policy and Appeasement in Interwar Britain, which our introduction to this episode was based on. So in today's episode, we'll be discussing Guilty Women, including how her original analysis casts new light on the gendered representation of appeasement, but also the turn to international affairs in feminist politics, and the extent to which it reveals how British women were deeply invested in foreign policy between the wars. Julie, delighted you've been able to join us today. We started with a look at the so-called women's peace, the perception that women were behind the push for appeasement by the Chamberlain government in the 1930s, and that their emancipation through the vote had facilitated the, quote, ignominious policy of appeasement and, quote, sown the seeds of national decline. This was encapsulated in the polemical text, Guilty Women, which squarely pointed the finger at women for the disastrously failed policy of appeasement. So can you give us a little bit more context about this text, how it positioned itself as a sequel to the famous essay, Guilty Men, and what kind of impact it had at the time? Yes, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me onto this podcast. I'm delighted uh, to be here, and I think it's a, a great forum to start to discuss the process of gendering international relations and diplomatic history. Yes, what about this text, Guilty Women? What was it about? Why well, have so few people heard about it, uh, especially in, in juxtaposition to that very famous, even infamous text, Guilty Men, published under the pseudonym of Cato, but written actually by Michael Foote, Frank Owen, and Peter Howard. It was a, a a real cornerstone text of the Second World War. It kind of made it very clear who was to blame, who should be the scapegoats. It was written, you know, uh, in the weeks after Dunkirk uh, as a, an indictment against the national government of the 1930s, uh, against the prime ministers um, of the 1930s, not only Neville Chamberlain, but it went back further to Stanley Baldwin uh, and to Ramsay MacDonald as well. Uh, the point was that these men, these guilty men, and then a small uh, uh, coterie of men uh, beside them had been responsible for sending uh, Britain in to a, a war unprepared, materially uh, unprepared, also psychologically, and, and that they had, of course, been the architects of appeasement, which was not only strategically flawed, but certainly a morally bankrupt policy in every way. Um, so uh, only a year after that, uh, another journalist, uh, Richard Baxter, published this book called Guilty Women, clearly meant to be a rejoinder or a sequel to Guilty Men. What it didn't achieve was anything like the success um, of Guilty Men in terms of sales, in terms of influence, more importantly, I think. And we know very little about Richard Baxter himself. It might well be a pseudonym as well. So it's more or less a rant, an 80-page rant. It's not quite a book. If it were a fictional form, it was. It, there are fictional elements to it, but um, uh, you know, it's kind of novella size indictment uh, of women, specific women, and then women as a whole. He takes issue, of course, with what women who were kind of bona fide appeasers did 
um, he's concerned with the very negative influence and motives of leading figures like Nancy Astor, um, who was the first woman to take her seat in Parliament, but also by the mid-1930s had taken on another role as the as the hostess of the so-called Cliveden set, and who was a, a great champion of Anglo-German friendship. But that she held in a complex way. She held those views alongside her quite progressive views when it came to to sexual politics. And she she did identify um, as a feminist uh, as well. Um, But he also talks about women who worked much more behind the scenes, kind of in back channels or as go-betweens in the the dark corridors of the diplomatic world. And he has uh, had a lot to say about the uh, influence of Gertrude Schultz Klink, who was the Nazi women's leader. So these are the guilty women in his view. Um, These are the named guilty women. He also mentions women who are active in the British Union of fascists. Um, So, um, you know, card-carrying fascist women, although he completely, I think, from my other research, I think he gets that pretty wrong. But then more shockingly, he has a real go at women in general. And again, the kind of this idea of a constructed woman, political woman, and, you know, the women's block uh, in politics at this time, and that it's, you know, women's reserve, it's women's fear of war that has led uh, men to make these really unwise and cowardly decisions in foreign policy. Um, So he holds the women to blame as such. So women as a collective. Yeah. And how much influence do you think that text had uh, at the time? And and why has it been forgotten, do you think? I I don't think it had very much influence. I mean, I I found a a handful of reviews, not that many. Um, And I I found a, a number of places in which it was advertised for sale. Other than that, it's mentioned once or twice um, in in some diary entries and so forth, but it clearly didn't have as wide a readership as so many other texts. And why? Um, well, I mean, it's it's entertaining. It is sensational. But you know, I think most people at the time would have been able to see right through it as we do today. Even though there are gems or or, or seeds of truth and reality, his interpretation is more or less unsubstantiated in the accusations he makes. He you know he's assuming that uh, the former uh, ambassador Ribbentrop's wife was uh, working with Schultz Klink to establish a spy ring of, of, of domestic servants in Britain. So we know that 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 was real, you know, more fantasy than anything else. So I think it was it was just too fanciful uh, for readers even at the time. And, you know, the same way I struggled to discover who Richard Baxter was. Uh, I suppose he wasn't particularly prestigious or well known at the time. Yeah. And he seemed to want to have a misogynistic axe to grind. So yeah, I, w- I wouldn't want to know what, what life was like at home for him. <laughs> um, but I mean, I suppose there's some truth to the narrative, not in terms of, you know, as labeling the women as guilty necessarily, but at the time there were some strong internationalist and pacifist uh, women's movements who were, would you say, sort of lobbying or trying to influence the prime minister or just public opinion to an extent. Would you be able to talk a bit about those those pacifist women? Yes, they were seeking influence in a political way, but possibly not the women we think. Um, in fact, the women who were currying favor or trying to curry favor were those who were well connected politically. Sometimes the you know the wives of politicians, you know MPs themselves. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, uh, Nancy Astor, but then there were another you know group of you know well well connected, well heeled, titled women who 
were very much, you know, uh, advocating Anglo-German friendship and, and who for various uh, reasons wanted to avert another war. Um, so they actually had quite a lot of influence. And we're not even talking about women who were just in the in the wider circle of the Chamberlain family. We have to talk specifically about Neville Chamberlain's two unmarried sisters, Ida and Hilda, who were uh, his confidants. And he wrote to them on a regular basis, at least once a week. And he never kept a diary as many of their politicians have. But what we have are these letters between himself and his sisters and a few letters between him, himself and his wife. And these letters are, are called his diary letters because he's he's speaking them to or writing them to his sisters. Um, and Chamberlain died in 1940. So he never got around to writing his own memoirs, to writing, you know, to setting the record straight from his point of view. Um, so I mentioned these because, you know, he talks about a lot of aspects of where he thinks his support is coming from. And he's he's definitely convinced that he has the women on his side and that he wants to take advantage of that and that he really appreciates that support. He, you know, there's a lot that can be said about Chamberlain, but I don't think he was being exploitative with that kind of support. I think he felt he had worked hard to achieve that support. And he was glad that he had because, you know, he had already been Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s. He was Minister of Housing. He had had kind of a, a long term rapport with kind of, uh, you know, the women in the electorate. Um, so he already kind of had, I suppose, the women on his side. Uh, and he was able to carry that support further into his very significant interventions in foreign policy by the late 1930s. Um, and one of the ways we know about that support was by the thousands of letters that were written to himself and to his wife, um, Annie Chamberlain. Now, it's not only that those letters were written that is interesting, because obviously people write letters to politicians all the time, but it's interesting the way they were preserved and the, the way that the Chamberlains made space for them in their own kind of archive, in their own record. So there were there are files and files in the Chamberlain papers called the crisis letters. Um, and I think what, you know, each of these letters was clearly read, not necessarily by Chamberlain himself, um, but both Chamberlains hired a number of extra secretaries just to deal with the letters and to respond to these letters from the electors. Um, and not only the electors, because these were letters came from uh, uh, throughout the empire and from around the world. There were lots of letters from France, for instance. French women in particular made collections to buy things for Chamberlain, to buy him fishing rods, to name towns after him. To There were, there were books opened in, in, in local prefectures, um, you know, to sign, to, to express your gratitude to Chamberlain. And so, you know, th there was this outpouring uh, of gratitude, which the Chamberlains read as public opinion. I think that's the, the most important uh, thing. So these this correspondence, it's almost wholly uh, uh, full of appreciation and not critical. Um, and, you know, speaking to Chamberlain as the man of peace the, 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 that had saved the world and and, you, you know, in these letters, they would be very personalized. They had saved not only the world, but of course, they had saved these women, their sons and their husbands um, and their homes um, from, an, uh, you know, from another world war, a world war that uh, was almost certain to be a war from the air and have devastating impact on civilian populations. So it was a war that had already become one where women were uh, directly implicated. We know this not just because he's collected these letters, but because in a number of his speeches, he talks about the letters. 
There's that very famous speech that he makes or that announcement he makes on the BBC on the 27th of September 1938, just before his invitation for that third meeting with Hitler, the invitation that is the Munich summit. And in that, he says that, you know, he knows what he knows about the national mood because of the letters that he's received from women. So, you know, this is just before he goes on to say that, you know, uh, it, it's not worth fighting for, for Czechoslovakia, for a people of whom we know nothing. And what is so fascinating about that, too, is how historians have never picked up on that. They've never picked up on that link, that connection between gender and appeasement. Yeah, that's really interesting that he, I guess, implicates women in, in that speech, because, I mean, I'm sure there were also men writing letters as well, that it wasn't just women. So we know that that Chamberlain himself felt the need to adhere to female public opinion as it was per- perceived. And, and there was talk after the Munich Accord of actually him calling a general election to capitalise on this, what, what he perceived, and perhaps, well, we don't know, but potentially his vast popularity with women voters. Um, But was there any evidence to this, um, well, the so-called women's vote, i.e. women voting on bloc um, to show their support for appeasement that was making certain groups of men so anxious at the time? Really important question. And what happens after Munich conveniently is that there is this series of by-elections more by-elections than there would normally be in a similar period. So there's six by-elections, all of which are are grouped together by the media, by the press, and called the Munich by-elections. Immediately, they're identified as a mini-referendum on the Munich Agreement. And within the the speculation of which way these elections are going to go, and and of course, within the campaigning itself uh, by the candidates, uh, there is definite concern for an, an attempt to capitalize on what is perceived to be women's support and women's pro-appeasement stance. Now, that comes across in in many uh, important ways and the ways that especially the pro-government candidates, um, they organize women's meetings in the afternoons. They want to make sure that they're really reaching the women's vote. They're getting the women's vote out, as we would probably say. And they're gearing much of their rhetoric towards the celebration again of Chamberlain as the man of peace that has saved their homes, that has saved their lives, that has saved their families and so forth. Uh, What is interesting is there are a number of women anti-appeasement candidates uh, as well which also kind of puts pay to this um, one who is successful and one who is unsuccessful. But is it true? That's that I think was your question. Is there any evidence to suggest that women are swinging the elections one way or another, or most importantly, swinging the elections in, in favor of, of these pro-appeasement, pro-Chamberlain candidates, these national government candidates? And the answer is no, not really. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the ballot box, there's no real way of substantiating this idea that there is a women's vote or that there is a peace block. Um, and ultimately, with all these by-elections, there was a lot of store placed on making a comment on foreign policy, uh, but ultimately they would come down. Most of them came down to much more local issues, much more kind of bread and butter issues uh, that you would expect in a, in a by-election. Although they were framed um, as part of this important national and international narrative by the by the press. But yeah. what is interesting there, just to elaborate now, is um, you know again uh, that some women were front and center representing the anti-appeasement position. And one of the most fascinating of these women, and again, one who was involved in the last of this series of by-elections, which is the, who is the Duchess of Athol. She was a conservative. 
She'd been groundbreaking and, and glass ceiling breaking. She was the first uh, serve the woman cabinet minister in the 20s. And then she started to fall out with her party first in ways that we pr- can predict actually going too much to the right. Then she also followed Churchill, not necessarily because she was personally following him because their political journeys happened to travel along the same uh, uh, trajectories. Um, she then became uh, completely in agreement with, with Churchill on, on his anti-appeasement stance. Um, and she came to that um, through her own epiphanies and her own travels and, and, and what I would call her fascist encounters. Uh, she traveled to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. She was the author of, of a Penguin special, a book called Search Light on Spain. Um, so she was a real authority on foreign policy. And in that role, even though she was on the right of her party on so many issues, when it came to Nazism, she completely saw what was coming. So she fell out with her own party over appeasement. And she therefore brought this by-election upon herself, hoping that by winning, uh, first of all, you know, she, she lost the party whip. And uh, she decided that it was important you know, to, to, to show that the electorate was behind her. They weren't in the end. Um, and she lost her seat. Um, but she really staked her whole career on this question of appeasement, because her, you know, her, her view of what was going on, her, her understanding of the threat of Nazism overrode all other concerns. So clearly women were split on this issue. And like what I guess the, the media perhaps at the time and afterwards was trying to indicate. And another aspect of this that's really fascinating is, as you've said, during this period, the vision of, of women's pacifist movements on the left or the liberal side blurred uncomfortably with that of anti-war Nazi sympathising women on the far right who were active in Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists, amongst others. And and women's involvement in far-right politics is another area of your research expertise, and in fact you wrote your PhD about this. So how great was women's involvement in movements like the BUF? And to what extent was the far-right at the time on the same side as these pacifist groups in their kind of push for appeasement? A complicated one, and I want to do it justice in the the short time we have. But yes, my first book, Feminine Fascism, looks at women in Britain's fascist movement. It was reissued um, in its second edition, which was nice after kind of a 20th anniversary edition, as it happened to be. And everyone needed a little boost in 2020. So it was nice that that came out. Um, And it looked at women in, in fascist politics from the 1920s through the war period. But I have also published just recently an article looking very, very specifically at the so-called women's peace campaign that was organized by then. It was called the British Union rather than British Union of Fascists, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, Yes, so interesting things are happening within fascist politics, but also within kind of women's politics within fascist politics um, in in the late 1930s. So in We would expect, of course, a fascist movement to be pro-war, militarist. Uh, It is itself a paramilitary movement. It luxuriates in violence and street violence uh, uh, in the short term and is clearly builds its policy and its world vision on conquest. So then what happens in Britain in 1938 when Oswald Mosley says, hey, we are now an anti-war movement and I am going to announce my policy for peace now? course, they weren't pacifists at all. They were anti-war. They were anti this war, a war that would have been fought against ideological friends and and allies. Uh, However, they did pick up on and they did kind of develop policies and and a rhetoric and organized 
in line with pacifist politics, but still, you know, it was really incongruous um, in any case. But where it's possibly least incongruous is, is the way in which women were enlisted into this anti-war or peace movement within the fascist fold. And it was very easy for women to, you know, to, to stress their maternity, their role as women, their domestic roles, and the fact that they were the world's natural pacifists. Um, and that whether that was within fascism or with any other movement that seemed to make perfect and logical sense. What was the real kind of clincher though, and was the way that they framed their anti-war position. Because they're, of course, they were mothers of the nation. They weren't internationalists, they were anti-internationalists, unlike other pacifist movements, which usually built on international networks and connections. And the, for fascist women, they had to maintain this anti-war position from a racialist and an ultra-nationalist point of view. So their uh, arguments were usually that their role was to, you know, to keep other women out, to keep out refugees. British families came first. Charity begins at home was their one of their slogans. Um, and they fought this peace campaign on that basis. So this was nothing altruistic. This was nothing that resembles kind of a Christian pacifism or absolute pacifism. So easy enough to kind of separate them from women Women or other pacifist traditions. But funnily enough, there's a moment in 1940 where they seem to be closer than we should be comfortable with, with an organization like the Peace Pledge Union, where the Peace Pledge Union was starting to be increasingly apologist for Nazi Germany, because again, for them, the, the greatest sin was war. And, you know, we find that throughout the 1930s, pacifists of, of every political hue go on different journeys and have different moments of conversion where they realize the incompatibility, the absolute incompatibility of anti-fascism and pacifism. There were some, though, who never experienced that psychological and moral epiphany. Um, and many of them were in organizations like the Peace Pledge Union. Uh, Rose McCauley, a well-known writer who had been a Peace Pledge Union member, but who was one of the people whose journeys took her to the point where she realized the incompatibility between anti-fascism and, and pacifism, she did say that, you know, when she picked up Peace News, the, the publication of the PPU, sometimes she thought she'd picked up the black shirt by accident. As you write about, this tension was encapsulated in a now little known visit of Gertrude Schultz Klink, head of the Nazi Women's League, the most senior Nazi woman, to London in March 1939. So can you tell us um, about the background of this visit and, and what the reaction was of these two movements, those on the pacifist side and those on the far right to this visit, and also why you believe that her presence in pre-war London disappeared almost entirely from memory and historical writing? The visit of Gertrude Holtz Klink is such a good illustration of how women have been written out of the history of appeasement. I think it's important for that as much as anything else. How important it was as a diplomatic incident, again, because it's been written out, nobody's even kind of asked about its significance and its influence. Um, but yeah, there's this event which was covered to some extent in the newspapers and the press at the time, and we can find little traces of it elsewhere. So yeah, she came uh, on this visit, which was not meant to be an explicitly political visit, but the timing, it was just gobsmacking. You know, she, she came in March 1939, and this is just weeks before Hitler puts paid to the whole Munich Agreement um, and marches into to Prague and takes the rest of Czechoslovakia. And no one seemed to think that this would be 
a problem. Not only did they not think of a pro- it would be a problem, she was really feted by a whole, whole kind of conglomeration of nationalist, national service oriented women's groups by the, you know, members of the Conservative Party. Then they, you know, held a dinner for her at Claridge's. You know, they really showed her a good time. She wasn't the kind of person that you get the impression could be shown a good time. She had a kind of dour appearance. Also interesting, actually, the way that both uh, Richard Baxter describes her, the very, very derogatory and deeply venomously misogynist language, uh, you know, would be her big feet and things like that, you know, and she didn't have particularly big feet. In any case, I have no sympathy for Gertrude Schultz killing. This is the problem, right? Because, you know, just because you write about women doesn't mean you have to admire them or there are evil women in history. And I'm accustomed to working on women who I have no sympathy or, and she's certainly one of those. She was an invited by Prunella Stack. Prunella Stack, before being Lady Hamilton, uh, was the daughter of the founder of the Women's League for Health and Beauty. And it was one of the most popular activities and institutions with women in the 1930s. So Prunella Stack had been at an international event in in Germany the the summer previous. The, The invitation to Gertrude Schultz Klink came notionally as a reciprocation for that. However, it became much more in that a number of set pieces, a number of occasions to meet her, to give her the impression and the understanding. And this was clearly what all these contributors, all these various participants wanted to stress, that there was a lot of support for Anglo-German friendship and for reconciliation and for arbitration and that the spirit of the Munich agreement carried on. Yeah, until Hitler a few weeks later, as you say, completely went back on it. Where we're talking like two weeks. Yeah. Wow. Um, So, I mean... On the one hand, you know, these women were labelled as guilty, but a mere decade or less before, their involvement in international affairs and international bodies in the 1920s had been received with hope. And as you stated before, there was a sense that women could heal the world profoundly wounded by a war of annihilation, obviously the First World War, reform the culture of international relations, democratise diplomacy, educate the next generation to abhor war, and remake the world in their own feminine image as as an alternative to male aggression. So that's a quote. Was this view widely shared by men at the time? And how easy was it for these women to play a role in international affairs at the time? And was this story setting them up to fail later on in the 1930s with the the onset of war? Well, of course, women had always exercise soft power uh, in foreign relations and diplomacy. And then in a way, the... 20s and 30s are kind of this kind of period of limbo in that sense, because women have achieved certain rights and and opportunities within government, within politics, but they haven't achieved everything. And one thing they haven't achieved yet is the uh, right to to be diplomats themselves. But that exercise of soft power, of being the power behind the the throne to achieve what they want to achieve, being even kind of femme fatale figures in that, that carries on almost uninterrupted by the First World War and uninterrupted by the great popular movement for the democratization of international affairs, which follows upon the First World War and is well illustrated by the popularity of one organization in particular in Britain, which is the League of Nations Union, um, which again shows how much popular support there is for foreign policy that it should no longer be a secretive, uh, it should be democratized. So 
women had already, as I as suggested, are already continued to play those roles. But then there's this moment of transition in the in the 20s and 30s where women are seeking their voice and their and influence um, in the realm of foreign foreign policy. Um, so there are a number of organizations which struggle with that, the crux of the matter, how to reconcile their pacifism or their pro-peace position with their growing uh, recognition and understanding of what fascism means. And the other thing about, you know, these organizations is that they're, they were quite porous and that people came and went quite a lot because they struggled with, as they do in all political parties throughout history in many ways, but I think more so there's the turnover um, of, of membership, inner conflicts that, um, you know, people faced, um, uh, you know, is illustrated well in the in, in the fluctuations of memberships and uh, of membership in a lot of these organizations. Yeah, thank you. Um, and finally, um, moving to an overall assessment of, of women in appeasement in the 1930s, how guilty were these women in reality when the highest level of decision making um, especially in diplomacy, still very much remained in the hands of men in male domains. Thank you, Lizzie. Were they guilty? Should we even use the term guilty, I think is the more important question of all of them. I don't think so. I use the term guilty women uh, or guilty men for that matter, because the, that was the terminology. That was the, the need at the time uh, to find scapegoats, to find someone to blame, to find someone to be held responsible for the perilous condition of the nation at the beginning of the war. But ultimately, of course, they're not guilty of anything. Most people were prioritizing themselves and their families and, and their immediate needs and, and concerned about their survival. These were existential questions. We can't blame anyone for not wanting to rush to war, certainly. And I think that's the, the quandary they found themselves in. Um, war at what price? Peace at any price? No, that's probably too far for most people. But ultimately, most people were somewhere in between. Nobody, and this is really you know important, no one was advocating a rush to war. No one was speaking in bellicose terms um, before the war was actually declared. Claire Churchill, the great anti-appeaser, as he's been labeled, he, he never spoke with in the rhetoric of war. It was always about different ways of achieving peace, of maintaining peace. Most people were on the same page uh, when it came to, you know, what they thought they wanted to maintain. And it did happen that more women than men were politically undereducated or uneducated. Um, and that is what was discovered by a number of interesting political experiments at the time, including mass observation, which began in 1937. So it was really new as an enterprise at the time of the Munich crisis. Nonetheless, they did a, a really fascinating study of the Munich crisis. And in that, there is a lot of certainly anecdotal evidence um, of, you know, women are, are much more, again, pro-Chamberlain, pro-appeasement, more reluctant to go to war, more ready to let Hitler get away with it if it saves their skits. And as we discussed above, you came to study women's political involvement through an interesting route by studying women on the far right. So what ignited your interest in this area of women's politics in particular? It was quite an organic development, in fact. I clearly had become the kind of historian, or I identified myself as the kind of historian, uh, who wanted to 
locate women who had been otherwise um, forgotten. Uh, and now that has been the enterprise always of women's history, rescuing women's voices, making sure that women are not forgotten, that they're not erased from history. Uh, and the tendency has always been, or mostly been, um, to rescue those women who do credit to later emanations of the women's movement. Um, I didn't necessarily begin as a women's historian. My interest was in British fascism, and then I came to the interest in women after. My concern was to deal with women who had not really been dealt with by other women's historians because no one really wanted to rescue them. And I'm not saying that they need to be rescued in a, in, in a positive way. I've always felt, though, that we need to have a full picture of women's political abilities, their roles, their choices, and their types. So from looking at women in a fascist movement, those women who we don't rescue because we admire them, but we rescue because it's too dangerous to write them out of history for other reasons. Um, I then moved on to another field where in the same period where I felt women had clearly been written out or forgotten um, in a in a, in a different way. The effort of recuperation was a slightly more positive one because the, the kind of the juncture between these two projects was to turn to women's anti-fascism and how a uh, feminist anti-fascist discourse and mentality and movement in a loose sense of movement materialized in the late 20s and certainly in the 1930s. Um, so I was interested in how women were engaging with foreign affairs, with international affairs in, in a broad sense, because they had not really been represented in, you know, international history. And it was only kind of a sideline of IR, gender and international relations, women and international relations, two kind of subfields um, that had started to think and conceptualize uh, women's erasure and to try to include women in, in a story where they had always been. They just hadn't really been properly recognized. And well, we first worked together on a very special project, which was covering the story of your role as historical advisor um, to Gillian Wearing, who was the sculptor of the statue of Millicent Fawcett, the first ever statue of a woman in Parliament Square. So can you tell us a bit more about your role on that project? It was one of the highlights of my career, I think, to be involved in that on so many levels. Uh, it was exactly three years ago. Something came up on my Facebook to remind me that it had been. It was three years ago that we were there um, and we met there too. Uh, uh, a few, couple of months later, um, uh, with you, Lizzie, which was a lot of fun. So that came about because of my interest and perceived expertise um, in women's history and and particularly in what happens next. I was interested the journeys suffragists and suffragettes took during the war itself and after the war. And I thought that that was something that needed to be well represented, especially since the statue was commemorating not necessarily the militant movement, certainly not alone, uh, not even the wider movement. It was commemorating the achievement of the vote. And I thought it was important to say what happens next. In that moment of real anticlimax, because when you have a movement that is unified around a certain cause, when that goal is achieved, then what happens? So I've always been really you know, fascinated by and asked a lot of questions about the aftermath of suffrage. Yeah, so you helped draw up a list of uh, 59 other suffrage campaigners to sit around uh, who were carved into the plinth of the statue, which makes it a very special statue. It's not just to one woman, it's to these other uh, 59 individuals. And just uh, for our listeners who, who might visit the statue at some point, or maybe they've seen it, go back to it, it's a very special statue. Are there any women on that statue who were heavily involved in some of the internationalization or foreign affairs movements we've talked about that they should go look for on the statue? There are a number of them. You know, I was very glad that 
Ellen Wilkinson made it onto the statue, even though she was a very young woman at the time of the suffrage movement, but and she was a member of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. She went on, of course, to be an MP and was nicknamed Red Ellen. She was on the labor left. And she also was one of the first and probably the bravest anti-fascist activists in British politics. Uh, and in funnily enough, of all the women that uh, Richard Baxter condemns, um, the one woman he says needs to to be recognized as the antithesis of all this is Ellen Wilkinson. So um, he definitely thought not all women were guilty. At least Ellen Wilkinson was a good one. I also was very happy that Helena Swanick um, appeared on the statue. Helena Swanick, uh, again, I think her, her, her suffrage career is fascinating, but as fascinating, if not more, is her post-suffrage career. Um, and she, her life story spans exactly the story we've just been telling. Um, so she was a suffragist, uh, not, not a militant. She became a deeply felt pacifist uh, during the First World War, and she remained a pacifist throughout. Now, this created some issues by the late 1930s, because her primary identity as a pacifist made her say a number of things which sounded awfully pro-Nazi or certainly apologized for Nazism, which was uncomfortable on a number of fronts. Then she ends her life in a way that actually is the beginning of my current project. Sadly, in November 1939, largely because she was already 76 years old and she was suffering from illness. But nonetheless, she took the decision to take her own life, clearly because she didn't want to live through another war. And just to wrap up, what's next for you and your research? The current project is one that resonates quite a great deal with the kind of crises that we're facing at the moment due to the pandemic. It's a project that I began a couple of years ago, which again grew organically out of Guilty Women, is about suicide society in crisis. In doing the research and trying to locate women, you know, where do you find women? You have to go into unconventional source bases, certainly unconventional for IR, uh, to, to find women's voices. So I was I was really trawling carefully through the local press and the regional press, and I came across one after another reports of coroner's uh, hearings of suicide cases. The motif for the recurrent cause or trigger for these suicides was understood to be um, the international crisis, fear of war. So I've now collected uh, 144 cases, the Munich crisis suicides, if you like, and, and the fallout of Munich after I'll go a little further, but trying to understand again, the important kind of connection and trigger between external and internal events, the way that these external crisis was internalized. And at least in these tragic cases, people made either rational decisions, obviously many suffered from mental health conditions as well. But the final straw, if you like, was real fear of the war to come. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Um, we'll have to have you back on when uh, when you've done that work. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Lizzie. It's been great on a personal and a political level. It's been great to talk about my research, but uh, especially a delight to talk about it with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Danny McDivitt and Lauren Midgley from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. 
Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.